Father, now as we come once again to the Gospel of John, we pray that you would reveal to us Christ and your plan for Christ and your will for our lives as we seek to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. Lord, we wish to be faithful. We strive to be faithful, but oh Lord, teach us this morning how to be more faithful. As we see the life of John the Baptist, oh Father, be glorified in us now. Receive our worship as we offer it to you, desiring that your will be done on earth, in our lives as it is in heaven. Lord, you are the potter, we are the clay, you are the Lord, we are your servants and your children, eager to do your will. And so we ask you, Father, to empower us too, in Jesus' name, amen. One of the biggest privileges of the Christian life is that we get to tell people what they don't already know, namely, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that those who believe in him might have life in his name. And this is a privilege whose roots go all the way back to the days of John the Baptist, who was the first witness of Jesus Christ. He was the first of all the witnesses. The presentation of witnesses is really an important theme throughout the Gospel of John. We see it all the way through this book, and we'll be reminding you of that as we go through over the next many months. John the Baptist is only the first, but the Apostle John will present to us eight different witnesses. Some of them are individuals, some of them are groups, and let me tell you what they are. First of all, John presents John the Baptist, but beyond him, there is the witness in the gospel of um, the Father who explicitly declares that Jesus Christ is Lord in chapter 5, verse 37. Jesus' witness of himself in John chapter 8, my favorite chapter in this gospel, where Jesus makes it clear that he is exactly what he claimed to be, the Christ In chapter 5, Jesus tells everyone, listen, if you're not going to believe what I say, at least believe because of the works I do, the signs that I have done, his miracles, his miracles stand as a witness. The Old Testament is presented as a witness that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In chapter 5, verse 39, and, and some of those who met Jesus were his witnesses, and the disciples, of course, were his witnesses. And Jesus says, even the Holy Spirit will come as a witness that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be, the Son of God who came to give us life. And the word for witness in John is a legal term, and it means to testify verbally as in a courtroom. And so what is a witness? A witness is not necessarily a theologian. We're not talking about that, that level or that extremity of witnessing. You don't have to be a, a, an expert in apologetics or theological truth. Witnessing is simply telling verbally what you have seen and what you have heard. What do you know about Christ? What have you seen in your own life? What have you heard? That's what it means to be a witness. It's not that complicated. It's not that complicated, but oh, so important. 
And we need to understand that the whole point in the Apostle John's Gospel is to establish the fact that Jesus Christ and no one else on earth, but Jesus alone is the Son of God. And in order to establish that fact, he brings in witness after witness after witness. We've kind of learned along the way, haven't we, that John didn't sit down one day very whimsically and say, you know, I'm going to write a gospel too. I mean, the three other guys wrote a gospel. I want to write a gospel. It's not how he did it. It's not like sitting down and journaling your thoughts. When you start studying the gospel of John, you realize there was method, there was strategy, there was really some deep thought that went into it. Yes, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he gets all the credit and all the glory for it. But you think about John thinking his way through this book. He was very specific. He put on something that the other gospel writers didn't. He started with this very interesting and and very explanational prologue to his gospel. None of the other gospel writers did that. And the reason he did it was because he had a very, very clear message. He also had a very clear conclusion at the end of the book, which none of the other gospel writers did. In fact, most biblical authors didn't in any of the books. And then you have major themes. John is talking about the signs that Jesus did, and there were eight of them. Well, seven plus the resurrection. And then there was this theme of belief and unbelief, light and darkness, stretched all the way throughout the book. And one of the other themes is witness. These witnesses that John brings to bear throughout his gospel were very carefully chosen. And there, obviously, there were many witnesses, many witnesses, people who told other people about the glory of Christ, the excellencies of Christ. But he's very careful to choose specific ones for specific reasons. Now, as we see in our text this morning, the first of these witnesses is none other than a man by the name of John the Baptist. Listen to the apostle's words as he introduces this first witness in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And we'll only take these three verses because we have the Lord's table this morning. We certainly want to leave enough time for that. And so here's what John says, John chapter 1, verse 6. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now again, let me just remind you that every time in this gospel the term, the name John is used, it's not referring to the author of this gospel. He never refers to himself as John. Every time you see John, it's, it's a, it's a, um, a, he's pointing to John the Baptist, and so he is here. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now, I want to talk to you about three things this morning, and the first one is um, John's calling. I really want to spend some time talking about the extraordinary nature of this man. He had a unique calling. He was called in a way that no preacher in our day is ever called. Uh, You know, when I... When I decided that I was going to become a pastor, nobody knew that. There weren't any angels. There weren't any prophecies. There weren't any any stars in the sky. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. But when John was called, everybody knew. And I want to show that to you this morning. Let's spend a few minutes thinking about this unique and amazing man. Turn with me to Luke chapter 1. 
There are a few things that I want to point out about um, John that make him unique and make his calling um, amazing, just absolutely amazing. And as you're going there, let me point out one thing that makes his calling absolutely amazing. The first thing is that John the Baptist fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah's forerunner. Forerunner. A forerunner, in this case, is the one that the Old Testament prophets said would come before Messiah. He would come and announce to Israel, your king has come. Your king is here. Get ready. Repent and get ready because your king is here. And so the Old Testament prophecies, here's one, Isaiah 40, verse 3. The prophet Isaiah says, a voice is calling Clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for your God. This calling, this voice, was none other than John the Baptist. We saw in past weeks, you remember when the Pharisees came and they said, okay, tell us who you are. They thought maybe he was the Christ. They were a little perturbed because of some of the things uh, that he was saying about them and to them. Tell us who you are. Are you the Christ? And he said, no. I am a voice calling from the wilderness. What was he doing? He's quoting Isaiah 40. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of what the prophet said would come. And you remember in the Old Testament book of Malachi, we have the same thing. This uh, Old Testament witness, this Old Testament prophet Malachi said that before the day of the Lord, an Elijah-like prophet would come. And John the Baptist fulfilled that prophecy. That's Malachi 3.1 and chapter 4, 4, verses 5 and 6, if you want to look that up. And so we're going to see this again here in just a minute in in a really extraordinary way. But what we need to understand, first of all, this guy was unusual. His calling was unusual because it started hundreds of years before he was even born. God declared that he would raise such a man to announce that the king is coming. And this is the way it was done. If the king was going to come to your village, first of all, there would be carriers and they would be announcers who would come and they would kind of sound the clarion call. The king is coming, prepare your town. The king is coming, prepare your town. When Jesus came and he had his disciples, he sent them out two by two to the towns that he was headed to. And, he, and, and what was their job? Get ready, the king is coming. He's coming. Be prepared for the king. And so it was with John the Baptist. So second, John was unique because his conception and birth were miraculous. Now that's unusual. Guess what? When I was born in Trenton, New Jersey, nobody cared except my mom and my dad, I think. But... Um, <laughs> Um, but when John was born, it was a huge deal because there was a lot of backstory to his birth. And I want to show that to you out of Luke chapter 1 because in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, John's father, Zacharias, um, was serving as a priest in the temple and, and here was his job. We're going to look at this more thoroughly here in just a minute, but I just want to give you some background. John was a priest Now, I don't know what your idea of how the priests served is. Maybe you just don't have any clue. Let me just give you a little bit of a window into the way the priestly system worked. If you were a priest, you lived at home most of the time. 
But there was a cycle of times when you kind of, you took your shift. There was a certain part of the year where you and a group of other priests, you took your shift, you left home, you went to the temple, and you were in a certain category of priests, depending on whose line you descended from, and depending on where you ended up in that lineage, you would be among a pool of priests and there would be the casting of lots to determine who would go perform that duty on a specific day. Zacharias was from an order of priests and their responsibility, at least in part, was to um, do things in the temple generally, of course, but from their line, they were chosen to go into the temple, not as high priest, but as a priest, and to go into the altar of incense incense representing the prayers of God's people, and they were to stand there, they were to do something to the incense to make the smoke go up, and they were to pray. They were to pray. Now outside, whenever the priest went in to do that, there was a very definite prescribed time of day in the morning when the priest would do that. And you know what the people would do? The Jewish people would gather around out in front of the temple, and they would pray. Zacharias was representing the people They were out out there praying while Zacharias was inside praying. And guess what they were praying for? You know the story of Zacharias, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, right? But let me, before we see all of this stuff, before we read it, you need to understand, he was not praying, God, give me a son. He wasn't praying for himself. These guys didn't go in there to offer up random prayers. Let's see, what should I pray for today? Aunt Susie's liver is quivering you know, Uncle Bob's got a heart attack. You know, somebody else has a financial need. That's not what he's doing. He had a very definitely prescribed prayer, and it went something like this. This is definitely a paraphrase, but you'll get the gist of it. Here's what they prayed. Oh, God, if you are a God, we are your people. We're under Rome. God, you've promised the deliverer. You promised the Messiah. God, send us the Messiah. Send us your son. Deliver us. Rescue us. Come. That's what he prayed. That's going to be really significant when we read the story. But here's, here's the beginning part of the story. Zacharias had a wife named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was old, and so was Zacharias. They had no children. She was barren, which in Israel, bad thing. It was presumed that God had cursed you. And so it was humiliating for this this couple, but they were godly. They were godly. So let's begin the story in in verse 5 of Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, Herod here is is important to notice because Herod is king before John the Baptist is born, but Herod would be the guy to throw John in prison and behead him. In the days of Herod, the king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Notice the different lineage. Aaron, who was the first high priest, and her name was Elizabeth. Those, uh, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Um, they were childless. What makes, what makes John the Baptist so unique? It's because his mother couldn't have children, but flip the page, if your Bible is like mine, and look at, look at verse 36. 
different, same chapter. Um, but now the angel Gabriel is talking to Mary, and he's trying to comfort Mary, just told her that she's going to have a child. And notice what he says in verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And here's what I want to submit to you. It didn't take long before that was news scattered all across Israel. Everybody knew this. Eventually, everybody knew this. And we know that from, from what happened. And I'm going to cut, cut the center part of the story for just a second and take you to the end. So, Zechariah is in the temple. He's offering prayers. God save us. Listen, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, priest after priest, day after day, after day after day after day, went in, stood before that altar and prayed, and, and there was never an answer. This was a unique day. Now let's go back to the people who were outside again. They saw Zacharias go in. He has this prescribed prayer. How long can that take? He should come right back out. And they're praying, God save us, send the Messiah. When he come out, they cheer and they sing and they praise God. Here's what happened. Verse 21, Luke 1. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. What happened? He didn't come out. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and, re and remained mute. And when the days of his priestly service ended, he went back home. And you remember what happened. The angel Gabriel, same angel who talked to Mary, made him mute because he questioned God's plan. He questioned whether it was even possible for God to give him and his wife, a child. And so the angel said, you remain mute until that baby's born. And this will be a sign. You know what? People heard about that. And all of these people outside the temple, they heard about that. John couldn't explain it very well for a while. But now we go to the backstory. what actually happened. Look at verse 8, and I'll read this whole section to fill in the gap here. What is it that happened? Um... Verse 8, now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is, this is huge. Nobody, God had never answered, no angel ever you walk into an empty room, you walk out of an empty room. You pray your prayer, you leave. That's it. Nobody ever got an answer. Zacharias did. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense, and Zacharias was troubled. And when he saw him, you got to better believe he was troubled. He was scared. Troubled means, I mean, terrified. When he saw the angel, and fear gripped him, seized him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Watch this. For your petition has been heard. That's amazing. A thousand, ten thousand other priests prayed exactly what he prayed and never received an answer. Zechariah, 
God hears you today. And here's how you're going to know. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn away many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to an attitude of, righteous, of the righteous so as to make, watch this, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's extraordinary. You see what he was doing? He was charged with the responsibility of get a group of people who are ready to receive their God, their king, because he's coming. Gather, as it were, the church. Tell them, get ready. Your king is coming. It's an extraordinary man, extraordinary heritage, extraordinary birth. He had Old Testament prophecies. And John, John was unique also because the angel told Zacharias that the coming child would indeed be this forerunner. And then finally, the Holy Spirit filled Zacharias on the day of John's birth. He hadn't spoken that whole nine months, hadn't said a word because the angel made him mute. But on the, on the day that he was to be circumcised, eight days after the birth of, of John the Baptist, they were trying to decide what his name would be. And everybody was saying, hey, name him Zacharias after his daddy. And, um, and Elizabeth was saying, no, 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 no. We call him John. And they said, no, don't call, what, where did you get John from? There weren't anybody in your house named John. Name him Zacharias. And suddenly, Zacharias started motioning with his hands that he needed to say something, and he took a, however, a chalkboard, I don't know what he had, and he wrote, and he said, his name is John. And immediately, his mouth opened, and he could speak. And you know what happened as soon as he started speaking? Holy Spirit filled Zacharias. He started to say things he could never have thought to say. And we have it recorded for us in verse 67, same chapter. I'm not going to read all of this, but let me just give you a taste. And the father of Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. And jump over to 76, and I'll just give you the essence of his prophecy. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high, that's Jesus, will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become more strong in spirit, and he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew this guy. And when he appeared, coming walking out of the desert with his camel skin and his leather belt, looking like a hippie, and he had this message, repent, 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is an exceptional calling. Nobody gets called like this. And everybody, I submit to you in Israel, knew about this child. They knew about this child. And so when he appeared on the scene for his ministry, it was big. And that's the second thing. His calling, secondly, his influence. Let's talk about his influence for a minute. Go back to John 1, verses 7 and 8. Here's what the Apostle John says about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light. That's Jesus. So that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John's ministry, I just can't emphasize this enough, his ministry was huge. I mean, it was like Billy Graham coming to your town. Uh, Everybody went out to see him. And think about this. We just don't get the significance of this. Once in a while, God will raise up a man who will become a powerful proclaimer of God's truth, and thousands will flock to hear him. And uh, and that was this kind of, of guy and his ministry But think about this. One of the reasons it was so big, there had not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Think about that. How old is our country? Think of Paul Revere. How long ago was that? George Washington, 200 years. Double that. No prophet in Israel for 400 years. When Malachi finished his his time as a prophet, it was over. In in biblical studies, we call this the period of silence. From Malachi to Matthew, 400 years. No prophet. And then suddenly, this guy who's got all of these credentials, the angel, the prophecy, the miraculous birth, everybody knew John. And a lot of them thought he was Christ. They weren't putting all the pieces together. They just knew that there was this prophet out there by the Jordan River baptizing people and telling everyone to repent. His influence was huge. And he was a different kind of preacher than what we're used to today. He certainly didn't fit the mold of the stereotypical 21st century preacher. This is not the humble, meek, and mild, sweet, humble-sounding guy in the pulpit who couches his message in uh, comfortable terms so that nobody gets offended. No, John was, frankly, he was a fire-breathing preacher who rebuked the people and demanded that they repent. It's amazing. In fact, one of the most sermon, one of the most famous sermon lines, one of the popular things today is to do, uh, people make what was sermon jams, right? They take these statements from famous preachers' messages and they put them to music and it sounds cool for the young people. Okay, try this on size for a sermon jam. Are you ready? Here's John's most famous preaching line. It goes like this. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Put that in the sermon jam. How's that for a culturally sensitive and inspirational church growth kind of message? In our day, people would question whether such an insensitive guy was even a believer. He was a prophet of God. And John's basic message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we've got to ask, in what sense is the kingdom of heaven at hand? In the sense that your king is here, and I'm about to announce him. 
I am the herald of the king. He's here, and when the time is right, I'll announce him because that's what I came for. Jesus was already in their midst. He hadn't done any miracles. He'd become a rabbi, and he had gained a following, but nobody really knew who he was. It wouldn't be long, though, until verse 26 comes around where John the Baptist points to Jesus at the Jordan River, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. John was a bold preacher. You remember that John even rebuked, I mean, he was so fearless, he rebuked the king, Herod, for committing incest by marrying his brother's wife. But even that godless king, I mean, when we think of our presidents and our leaders, we think of these people we've never even seen before. In Israel, however, the king was there. He kind of walked the streets. He had a guard, yeah, but people knew him by sight, and he could get close to people. He could get you know, close enough to hear John or anyone else say whatever it is they're saying or preach whatever it is they're preaching. And he liked John's preaching. Isn't that ironic? He liked John's preaching. Even that godless king had to acknowledge that John, quote, was a righteous and holy man. And Mark tells us that when Herod uh, heard John preach, here's what Mark says, he was very perplexed. Didn't understand this. He was very perplexed but he enjoyed listening to him. And you know what? When, when he threw that bizarre party and he asked his, um, his daughter, name anything up to half of my kingdom, and her mother said, uh, ask, ask daddy to cut off John's head. And Herod was upset because he liked John. Even though he was preaching against him, he just couldn't get past the righteousness and the power of his message and his life. And so he, he did it kind of against his will, but he was the one who had John killed. The Jewish leaders, frankly, were impressed by John as well. They thought maybe he was the Messiah. I made a mention of this, but look at verses nine, well, verse 19 and 20 of John chapter 1. This is the testimony John of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's clear. I am not the Christ. They thought he was Christ. They thought he was Christ. But he wasn't. In fact, so influential was the ministry of John the Baptist in Israel that decades later, when Paul was going around planting churches, guess who he bumps into? Disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul says, what's the deal with you? Have, have you not been baptized? What, what baptism, into what baptism were you baptized? And they said, John. And they said, well, don't you know about Jesus? No. And you remember, that was a crucial text because this was a whole people group, a um, you have Jews and you have Gentiles and you have the disciples of John. And this was one of the groups in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit de- descended upon and, and moved with such power among them that nobody could deny that these disciples of John had received the Holy Spirit and had become children of God, just like the Jewish brothers or just like the, the, uh, the other followers of Christ. And then, of course, the same thing happened with the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. It is said that 
there were known to be disciples of John even into the second century. You may recall that, that I told you a couple of weeks ago, John probably wrote this toward the end of the first century. So it was just a few years later that it was reported into the, into the early second century that there was a group of followers of John the Baptist. And you've got to assume that John knew that. John the Apostle knew that. So think about it. When he wrote his gospel, he was thinking, at least in part, I'm writing this to the Jews, yes, but I'm also writing this to the disciples of John the Baptist. They need to know that the one they should be following is not John the Baptist. They should be followers of Christ because he is the Son of God. And by believing in him, you will find life in his name. Not so with John the Baptist. Um, And so you see, John had an amazing calling and became a man of great influence. Thirdly, and finally, John's goal in his ministry was very, very clear. John had a goal. He had a calling. He had a ministry. He had a goal. There was no ambiguity about what John had come to do. He preached so that men would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 7. Again, John chapter 1. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. That was his goal. And this should be our goal as well. Beloved, all of us, all of us are given the amazing privilege to literally witness to people about the glory of Christ. Listen, we exist for this purpose. Say it with me. We exist to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things, to the glory of God in the joy of all peoples. That's why we're here. To glory in Christ Jesus, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ in all things. And so this ought to be our goal, just as it was with John the Baptist's goal. What we've heard here in verses 7 and 8 is kind of an outline of what John Um, what made John's witness great. Now, it's not easy to detect this in the English, but in the Greek, it's very, very clear. There are kind of three parts to this outline. First, John says, the Apostle John says, that John the Baptist was not the light. Secondly, the Apostle tells us that he was sent to testify about the light. And third, The Baptist testified so that men might believe through him. I just want to talk about these three things really briefly because I think they apply to you and me. First of all, let's think about about this briefly. John the Baptist was not the light. He was asked this many times, multiple times, just here in the Gospels. Are you the one we've been looking for? And notice how, how the Apostle John piles up words here when he says in verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed. He wanted to make sure there was no ambiguity here. When John was asked, are you the Christ? No ambiguity. I am not the Christ. Don't look to me. Don't look to me. What does that tell us? It tells us that he he didn't come to make a name for himself. He didn't get sidetracked on making himself out out to be all that, because he wasn't. He didn't preach, teach, and witness so that other people would be impressed by him. 
He was simply a voice, a voice. <laughs> he doesn't even present himself as a person, just a voice crying in the wilderness, make way, make the way straight for your God. He'd come to deliver a message, and that was all. He's like a mailman who delivers a message that comes from someone else to someone else. I'm just in the middle. They handed me a message. I'm delivering a message. God has given me a message. I'm delivering it to the recipients of the message that he's ordained. I'm just here. I'm the mailman. I'm just delivering a message. I'm not the author of the message. I'm not the creative genius behind the message. I didn't have anything to do with the message. I'm simply delivering the message. That's how John saw himself. And when asked later on in John chapter 3, as Brent read for us this morning, John had to tell his disciples, listen, stop looking to me. Go to Christ. And that's how Andrew got there. That's how James got there. And John said these words, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's the kind of humility that, that every faithful minister of the message of the gospel needs to have. Um, James Boyce points out that whenever a Christian layman, minister, writer, teacher, or whoever it might be gets to thinking that there's something important about him, he or she will always cease to be effective as a Christian witness. His testimony will cease. Beloved, we need to be so careful with this. And every preacher, every author, every person that God has put in women's ministry or men's ministry or you're a teacher at some level or, or you're discipling other people and they're following you or you're a conference, you know, you're a homeschool conference leader or whatever it is that, or maybe a counselor or something and God raises you up for a, a, a profitable, fruitful ministry, praise God for that. Praise God for that. But you are only the mailman. You're only a mailman. You, you are, listen, in my case, there were four faithful preachers in this church before I came. And there will be others after I leave. I am here for a short period of time to deliver the message. And when, when my voice and my legs and my heart grows tired, and it's time for me to wrap up my ministry here, and I hope that means I'm going home to Jesus because I don't have any other plans. Um, I just hope that God will put a, another mailman in my place who will just be faith, faithful to deliver the message. It's never about the messenger. It's always about the message. Beloved, we need to be so careful about this when we're presenting the gospel to other people that we don't give the impression that we're somehow promoting ourselves or promoting our church or promoting our denomination or promoting our style or whatever it is. We're not. We're proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. That's why we're here. We witness purely to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. There's no room for pride or arrogance or self-aggrandizement. We are merely mailmen delivering God's message. That's all we are. Secondly, that's kind of the first point in this outline. Second, John bore witness about the light. Watch this, verse 7. He came as a witness to testify about the light. And this is important because, again, when we talk about testifying or witnessing, 
The word that's chosen here in the Greek means to give verbal testimony in a, as in a courtroom of what you've seen and heard. You don't have to be a great theologian to do that. You don't have to have any training. You don't have to have any training. You know what the blind man said when he received his sight? He didn't know any theology. He just said, look, I was blind, now I see. Any questions? Jesus did it. I was blind, now I see. What else do you need to know? You don't have to have a lot of education. And this is really important for us because I think too often we're, we're really nice people and we like to be liked and we like to serve, but we want to be faithful to the Lord. And so we, uh, we live righteously, we live holy lives, and we pursue holiness and we want to be people of integrity. We want to be men and women of no reputation. We do that and we might falsely conclude that as people see our lives, maybe they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not true. That will help your testimony enormously. That gives you a platform to stand on, yes. But listen, sooner or later, you have to speak. You have to say something. You have to talk to them and say, what's the condition of your soul? How can I pray for you? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? How do you know that you know if you were to die today and someone were to ask you why, if God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would you answer him? You've got to speak at some point. If your message is going to be clear, you have to put it into words. You have to get around to proclaiming the gospel, not just living the gospel. By all means, live the gospel. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your God. But at some point in that process, you have to speak. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. John was a great example of that. Third, John witnessed. As he witnessed, he believed that God would actually use him to bring others to faith in Christ. Watch this verse. 7, at the end of verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. All might believe through him. You know what John the Baptist believed? As I'm living this life and as I'm proclaiming his truth, I believe God's going to use me. I believe God's going to use me. And every time I speak his truth, God's going to use that. His word never returns to him void. The only way anybody comes to saving knowledge of Christ is by hearing the word of God. And you know what? All I can do is be faithful to that message, but I can do it believing, God, you could use me. You want proof of that? Just look at the New Testament. Here's a great example, and I'll just give you one, and that's John chapter 4. Remember what John chapter 4 is about? Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman. How righteous was she? Not very. She's on her fifth husband, and the one she was hanging out with this time was not even her husband. She was a woman of ill repute. She had a bad reputation in her community. People knew her sin. And you know what? God used her to save that entire town. It was her testimony that turned that whole town around. They came to Christ because she left Jesus and ran home and said, come and see this man who told me everything I ever did, which was an exaggeration, this couldn't be the Christ, could it? That's all she said. She testified to what she had seen and heard. I saw a man, and this is what he said. Come and see. That's what Andrew did as well. 
How many times did Paul, when he was sharing the gospel, he always started it with his testimony. When he was speaking to Gentiles, always started it with his testimony. You see, you don't have to be a great preacher to be a witness for Christ. Just stay humble, speak God's truth as God gives you opportunity, and believe that God will actually use you to bring others to Christ. That's what John did, and we can learn much from him. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you this morning for your grace in, in these things. We are an undeserving people. We certainly don't deserve to be your ambassadors, but you've called us to that. Make us faithful, Lord. Help us to pursue faithfulness with all of our hearts. That we would be more faithful not only to live right, but to speak. To speak your truth, to challenge, to encourage, to call for repentance and faith. And to do it with grace and love, yes, but to do it. And be glorified, Father, as you draw others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for this book, the Gospel of John. Use it, Father, to transform us, we pray. And now, as we come to the Lord's table, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us again and remind us of the covenant that you have entered with us and we have entered with you and with one another. And I pray you would convict us of sin and fill us with your spirit. 